the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen. AM 1420, WBSM presents Spooky South Coast with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa. Science advisor, Matt Moniz, is actually uh, not here. I think he heard that Charlie Sheen's new uh, Sheen's Corner uh, began broadcasting on Ustream, who is our broadcast partner for Spooky TV, and I think he wanted to stay home and watch that. He said he was going to go by win someplace. Yes, he is by winning. Uh, he actually, uh, he's out helping a friend, so he won't be here tonight. But for those who are watching on Spooky TV, we say hello. And uh, if you're not watching on it, you can go to SpookySouthCoast.com and s- click on the Spooky South Coast TV icon up in the top left-hand corner. But just a warning, as I mentioned, Charlie Sheen is doing his first live Ustream broadcast tonight. Uh, they're also carrying a boxing match live at the same time that our program is going on. So with all this increased traffic on the Ustream, let's hope that they can handle it and it doesn't crash. Uh, but if not, you know, if it does crash, you know, you can just go to SpookySouthCoast.com and get the live audio feed there. Or you can tune into WBSM on the radio. So there's plenty of ways to hear us, to see us, to enjoy us. That's the way I look at it. How's that beard coming, Costa? Looks pretty good. It's coming. I don't know if you want to duck in front of the camera and show it to everybody. But basically, uh, Moniz shaved his off. He tried to trim it down. He did a hatchet job. On it, so he ended up having to take the whole thing down. So you win. Woo! It wasn't wasn't that uh, was not beard bad. off. Was not so great. So we had a great time at the uh, Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast, and uh, we what we'll do is we'll um, we'll be sure to talk about that maybe a little bit later on or an upcoming episode of the program. But for tonight, we're going to get right into the discussion uh, with our guest because I'm really excited about tonight's show. I've been reading this book now for a couple of weeks. I know it's 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 a brief book. It's a, it's only a hundred and you know, hundred and forty, hundred fifty pages, which you would think normally I would I would breeze right through. But as I'm reading it, I'm learning all this fascinating stuff that I didn't know about, uh, and I'm I'm getting really into the history of what's going on here. And the book is called Coral Castle, and I'll hold it up to the camera. And the author of the book is joining us tonight. Rusty McClure is an advisor and venture capitalist to numerous entrepreneurial projects, served previously as the president and CEO of the Brown Publishing Company, a regional newspaper holding company, and famous sportswear, a national distributor of college logo merchandise. With a Master of Divinity degree from Emory University and a Harvard MBA, he teaches an entrepreneur course at his undergraduate alma mater, Ohio Wesleyan University. He's also the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Crosley, uh, he is actually the son of Ellen Crosley McClure, daughter of Lewis M. Crosley, the surviving direct descendant of the Crosley brothers, which we'll get into a little bit later on. He lives with his wife and children in Dublin, Ohio, and he joins us on the line. Good evening, Rusty. How are you? I'm glad to be with you. We're glad to have you, and uh, we're glad that you can share with us the story of Coral Castle. We're going to bring on a special guest co-host tonight, because our, our usual third host here, uh, Matt Moniz, is out. So we're going to bring in Christopher Balzano, the content director for Spooky South Coast. And Chris, it was you that actually brought Coral Castle and, and Rusty's book to my attention. And living down there in Florida, I'm sure it's something you must have heard about. It is. I actually heard about it um 
Oh, by the way, hello. Um, it's <laughs> it's uh, something I heard about actually years ago from my boss who actually was the same guy, I think maybe even days apart, he mentioned the Freetown State Forest and Coral Castle because I'd never heard of it before. So this is kind of like, um, you know, getting the, the definitive picture of it, hopefully, and, you know, being able to ask those questions is kind of like uh, an exciting time because I've been researching this stuff for at least seven years now. So, Well, we're, I mean... I had never heard of it, and I'm sorry to say maybe it's because I'm not, you know, I've never been to Florida. I've never been further south than Washington, D.C., I'm sorry to say. Uh, but when I started reading about it, Rusty, it's not just the story of the castle itself, but of, about the man who created it. And I think as much as the work that he put into creating this and, and the mysterious way that he actually did it, the background story of Ed is just as fascinating as what he created. Yes. Um, uh, Ed, should we start about talking about Ed? It, you know what, Rusty, we can start wherever you'd like to start. All right, well, Ed, it starts with Ed, and it starts in Latvia, because Ed was a Latvian immigrant to this country, and what you were alluding to was that Ed was um, 26 years old, and he was engaged to a 16-year-old girl, and she told him no. I mean, they're, by, they're, they're different stories, but the night before or the day of the wedding, she says no, and he bolts for North America. And he wanders uh, North America. He ends up in the logging camps in the Pacific Northwest. He contracts tuberculosis. They called it consumption. He's found on the side of the road, Homestead, Florida. This is the early 1920s, and he is taken to the doctor because homestead and florida city florida is so small they don't have a they don't have a hospital and they they take him to the doctor and in those days if you had the latter stages of tuberculosis you were given a death sentence and so ed is given a death sentence you're going to this guy's going to die of tuberculosis and somehow he cured himself and he stayed and bought acreage outside of rural homestead florida scraped away the topsoil and built a castle to attract Agnes Scuffs, the 16-year-old girl who upwards of 10 years before that had said no, so she'll come and marry him. So he is a fascinating character without even talking about the castle that he builds. And before we even get into the castle and how he built it, just, you know, at the surface here, and I know that the story goes deeper than this, but at the surface, we're dealing with the story of a classic story of a, a, a scorned person in love who uh, he's rebuffed by his romantic efforts, and and now he decides to start anew. I mean, this is a, a similar story that we've heard with a number of immigrants, but he seems like he was a little bit different. I mean, he's not the typical, you know, strapping young man who comes to America. No, he's five feet tall, he weighs 100 pounds, and he's emaciated from the ravages of tuberculosis. Hardly a guy you would think would build a castle. And now, Homestead, Florida, sits on thousands of feet of oolite limestone, which is what we call coral, coral rock. Brittle, heavy coral rock is underneath the Everglades. It was at the bottom of the ocean thousands of years ago, uh, millions of years ago. And he goes and scrapes all this off, and he starts mining the coral 
to build this castle. In, you know, a castle in Homestead, Florida, 1920s. And now, instead of focusing on why he built the castle, we're going to talk about how he built the castle, because to this day, no one knows. No one knows how he built this castle. He's five feet tall. He weighs 100 pounds. The walls are three and four feet thick. They're 20 feet long, eight and 10 feet high. Big, heavy slabs of coral rock. He works alone. He works at night to build this castle. No one could do that. No one, no one could lift 10 and 30 ton slabs of coral rock. He builds the walls of the castle and inside he puts obelisks up that are bigger, taller, heavier than the obelisks of Stonehenge. Now it takes, history tells us it takes two or three centuries of tribes of druids to build Stonehenge. This guy worked alone, he worked at night, he's five feet tall and he builds this monstrous, heavy castle. And Rusty, what kind of tools is he using? Because that's as amazing. Yes, he has a fourth or fifth grade education, depending, we think it was about a fourth grade education in Latvia. And he goes to the junkyard, and he gets old, and this is 1920s, he gets old Model T and Model A trucks, parts of cars and trucks, and he brings them to this site, and he fashions tools, chains, pulleys, and he fells Florida pine trees and makes tripods. Florida, tri- Florida pine is soft wood, and it's not very tall. And he makes tripods, and he builds tripods and chains out of a junkyard pile. And so before he's even put the first stone in place, the fact that he's made these tools on his own is a remarkable feat unto itself. Unbelievable. I mean, I remember I mean, junkyard when I first stuff started, in the um, 1920s. hearing about this. The first article, now this keep in mind, this is with the, you know, the, the, just around the turn of this century, uh, maybe a little bit, you know, into the 19, uh, late 1990s. The first articles I was hearing about it made it seem as if, um, these things were appearing almost overnight, as if, like, people would, you know, kind of go by every one or two days and they would see one of these things. Is, is that an accurate picture or is that part of the romance? Well, he took, he took a decade and a half, which is a very short period of time if you compare this to the other Stone things around the world, Stonehenge, the Eastern Islands, uh, the um, pyramids. But he didn't build them overnight exactly. I mean, it, it took him it took him a while. No one knows for sure because no one ever saw him. I mean, he would work at night. He would work alone. And if anybody, remember, this is a very rural, flat, desolate area of South Florida. And it, he had a sixth sense, the people there said, that if he, anybody tried to sneak up on him or anybody came around him, he would, he would know they were there, he would stop working, he'd wave to him, and he would just shut down. So nobody ever saw him. So things started to appear, but I wouldn't say they did it overnight. I mean, it but took him a while, but nobody knows how long that while was. People they would come and see, see that he was making like progress. In, I'm sorry, Rusty, didn't mean to trust. People wouldn't see things in progress. They would see them only the completed item. Right. They would see that he made progress. They would not see him making the progress. No one ever witnessed him do it. I mean, uh, 
a family once, a mother took her, her kids and parked a car out in the field and tried to watch him until 3 or 4 in the morning, and the the kids remember that, you know, he just kind of came out and waved to them, and, and he wouldn't he never worked it. And finally, about 3 or 4 in the morning, the mom drove off, and that was the kind of attempt that was made to see him. It never worked. He never let anybody see him do what he did. And that's the other thing. I mean, we talk about these primitive tools that he made himself and, and the different, uh, you know, pulleys and, and different levers that he would use uh, on, on his own. But nobody ever saw trucks pulling in and out at night. You know, nobody ever saw what could possibly be somebody arriving to help him. Um, even more so. Um, at, he dies in 1951, and in the mid 50s, uh, four or five years after he's been dead, the people of Homestead, a very small place again, started having visitors come and say to them, "There's no way a guy could have done this," because the truth is, there is no way that we know how a guy could do this. So they're saying there's no way he could do it, and they're saying, "Oh yeah, but he did do this," and they're they're starting to feel the visitors. Not believing him. So one of the people of that area, a lady, puts together an affidavit and goes through the towns of Florida City and Homestead, little towns side by side, and gets the citizens to sign affidavits that I was the third grade teacher and lived down the road. I was, I ran the gas station and I knew I was the mailman. I was uh, the school principal, and I knew Ed, and he worked alone, he worked at night, and he signed it and notarized it and filed these affidavits in the Dade County Courthouse, and we, when we researched the book, we got our hands on the copies of those, 285 notarized affidavits of adult citizens of Homestead wanted to make sure that when they passed, they had documented that this guy worked alone and worked at night, and they knew he had done that. Wow. So this is, so this is a mystery. Now, about, and that's one of the amazing things about the book, Rusty, is that uh, it seems every account I've read has been, you know, a romantic version of things that are going on, and your book has the actual words of the people who were in the area. Yes. Who knew him, um, who, we li- many of the people there. were so compelled by these affidavit efforts, they actually wrote notations on the affidavits, and we quote many of them in the book. Then we went to nursing homes and older people in the community who were children or the children of, ch- of people who were living during that time, and we documented their eyewitnesses or their parents' eyewitnesses passed to them as well as these affidavits. And so this guy's, I mean, we started this by talking about why he built it in this lost love, almost a F. Scott Fitzgerald, great Gadsby-ish construction to, you know, to bring Daisy, his Daisy Agnes Scuffs across the Atlantic. But the real mystery here has never been solved. And there's more, there's much more to this. I mean, we're just talking about the fact that he built this heavy monolithic, so forth castle but what's inside the castle are the things that we're going to have to really delve into tonight and and that's the important part about it is 
you know, on the surface, we're talking about this, this great unrequited love story, but for all we know, that could have been a creation of Ed as part of the allure of the castle, as, as part of the, and also part of the cover story for what he was actually working on there. Yes, yes. I mean, there are, there are mysteries about who Agnes Scuffs was, and whether she actually existed, and even to the point, I mean, even if you think about it, Agnes Scuffs is not even a Latvian sounding name like Edward Leedskullen was. And there's thoughts that there was another woman or that he met, knew some other woman and he just made the story off of her. But see, Ed was such a mysterious hermit-type guy that he would not share any of these parts of the story. He just kind of fed the mystery that makes this so intriguing. So here we have a guy who is, like you said, five foot tall, 100 pounds, apparently working on his own, constructing his own tools out of junkyard parts, and moving these giant coral stones, which when you think about it, you say, well, why would it be coral? If you're going to build, why would you build out of coral? My guess being the main part of, you know, on the surface story is that it was abundant. It was free. It was there. Yeah, Uh, it's 4,000 feet. In parts of South Florida, it's 4,000 feet thick down underneath the Everglades, underneath the farmland around Homestead, Florida. So it's, it's, it's probably easier to find coral than it is to cut down enough trees to build something like this. Yeah, there aren't, I mean, the, there aren't many trees down there in the little <laughs> Florida pine, even big Florida pine. They're just, you couldn't build something like this. So if you're, he's, he's an Eastern European guy who has grown up around rock castles. You know, they're all around Latvia today. They were all around him. You know, the remnants of, Medieval castles are all over the, that part of the country. So, that part of, the, of his country. So, um, it, it's something he understands. But I think we to move this a little further. I, let's talk a little bit, if you'll let me, about the inside, what the elements that he puts inside his castle. Absolutely. Because this is just, you know, the castle is enough to draw interest. But what he puts inside the castle are elements that that are. Just hard to imagine, and uh, I'll start with the fact that he moved the castle. The castle, the front door of the castle, is on one of the corners of the Bermuda Triangle, and those are what are called uh, ley lines. Um, uh, uh, a British um, guy once studied the magnetic fields, even and figured out that. This is all theoretical, but but uh, it's widely known that the, there are many stone hinges in that part of the world, and they're all lined up on these what are called ley lines that are magnetic fields. So there's a lot of theories about that Ed put the castle on the corner of the Bermuda, Bermuda Triangle, and that many of the ley lines and the magne- magnetic fields that he uses to lift these rocks are all associated. And inside the castle, he builds an electric generator. Now, this is in the 1920s. Edison is alive and teaching the world how to build electric generators, and this Latvian immigrant with a fourth-grade education builds an electric generator out of junkyard parts in rural South Florida. He then wires that generator to a radio 
and he builds out of ball mason jars and wires from the junkyard again a radio. And so now, in the in the lifetime of Marconi, who's still alive, he's now building a radio when there's hardly any radio stations. And then he puts in that castle an obelisk that is bigger and weighs more than Stonehenge. And he puts up another obelisk, and he aims, he drills a hole in the middle of the obelisk, and he aims that hole at the North Star. He puts another piece of the wall of his castle aimed at the North Star. And if you look at one piece of the, if you look through, you line these two crosshairs up in the circle way up on the top of this obelisk, you get the North Star in one of the quadrants of the crosshairs, like two coat hangers in the middle of this big stone carving. And each season, the North Star moves in one quadrant to another to another. Now, think about that. Have you ever tried to hang a heavy picture frame with someone standing back, and they, you know, they say, move it left, <laughs> move it right, get it just right, and you're kind of getting tired? Yep. This guy hung a 30-ton, 40 40-foot 40 piece of rock by himself, like we just talked about, and aimed it exactly at the North Star. I mean, how you? I mean, how he could figure it out doing it to to do it, and then he, how he figured out how to do it is one of the, is just adding piling on to this mystery. Especially where that's something that you know, if you're if you're going to do it on your own, it's going to take a you know, if you're doing it by sight, it's going to take you quite a while to get through all the seasons to see you know where it's going to line up. And and here he is figuring it out as he's putting it up. It seems like and he's five foot tall and he weighs a hundred pounds, and he's going to make it exactly. You know, he's going to hang that, let's say, this monstrously heavy picture frame. He's going to get it right just exactly. But that's that's not enough. In one of the walls of the castle is a door. The door is five tons. Okay, five tons, this big limestone slab sits on a Model A ball bearing. And it can be pushed by a little girl with a finger. This big swinging door, can this huge slab of limestone... If a 12-year-old girl just pushes on it, it will open. It'll swing all the way around, which means that Ed found the exact center gravity of this huge slab of limestone and drilled a hole right up through it. Now, mm-hmm. after Ed died, in the like 20 years after Ed died, the ball bearings rusted out and the door collapsed. And the people who owned Coral Castle got a hold of the University of Florida Engineering Department because it was on, at that point, Coral Castle was on the National Historic Registry. And they got the engineering department of the University of Florida to come down and check out this slab door, swinging door. It took, uh, five, six people 
and a huge crane to lift the thing up, just wow. to get it up in the air. And they examine it, and they decide that what I just said, Ed found this perfect geographic weight center of this door. And this is 19, let's say, early 80s. He, I think it was 83. And he says, they say that the only way Ed could have drilled a hole through that slab perfectly as he did, he had to have a laser beam. In 1928, 32-ish, he had to have a laser beam to drill that hole through perfectly. And as they have this all apart, trying to figure out what to do with it, one of them says, you know, this swinging door was behaving like a pestle. You know, a pestle would grind mm -hmm. up something as it turned. So they dig underneath this door now that they have up, and they find a rock that's about six inches long, six inches wide, and about maybe a half an inch to three-fourths of an inch thick. And this huge door has been sitting on top of this little piece of rock because if it had been, and it, and it would have crumbled, and they they don't know why it crum would have crumbled. Well, they're the engineers from the University of Florida, so they sent it off to the University of Florida Geology Department, who six weeks later sent it back, material not of this planet. Wow. Okay? So this is Ed, who has not only built a castle, but he's hung a door on a piece of substance that's not part of this planet. Its origin is not part of the planet. Rusty, so you have these second. elements, and it goes on and on and on. He built a sundial that also changes every month by the seasonal change that is an invention. It's the only kind of sundial in the whole world. He invents this sundial, and it still works today. It's, a, it's an element inside this castle. And Chris, did you have a question for Rusty? Yeah, Rusty, I'm just, um, first of all, you've got the, the chat room going absolutely crazy looking everything up on Coral Castle <laughs> they possibly can, so it's, it's definitely a sparking interest. I'm actually surprised as many people don't know about it, but I was, one of the people in the uh, chat room just made a comment that the same uh, design for a door is used at NORAD. And I know this might kind of connect in with something that you're going to be talking about later. I just want you to keep that in the back of your head that this, this design that Ed had for this is also used for a government tracking system. Well, there's lots of that that goes that goes back to his his fascination of of uh, of space. I mean, there are huge elements of Saturn and the Moon. I mean, if you look at if you look at the book on the cover, you can see um, massive carvings of the planets in his planet room that are kind of associated with the telescope that I was talking about, but really are kind of just another piece of of his um, either a combination of higher intelligence, brilliant mind, things that other people have worked on. I mean, like, like the generator, like the radio, 
that have really nothing to do with rock, maybe. They have nothing to do with rock, maybe, but maybe they do, because that gets into this whole notion of the magnetricity and the use of uh, what he thought, was, what he claimed was the was his argument with the scientists that think that gravity is gravity where he thought it was magnets. And he wrote a, he wrote a journal and pamphlet on it. Um, people have read it. I'm not sure what he what he's saying in it because because he's either way out ahead of everybody or he's not he's holding back and he's not really wanting to divulge a secret. And many of these government people and many of these scientific people kind of work around this stuff. But when you get into when you get into um, why he built an electric generator. And what he said about his electric generator was that it was a perpetual motion machine. I mean, he said that the electric generator was all about the use of the polar opposites in a spinning, um, the spinning piece that's still there, and many and many of the elements disappeared after his death. Maybe because he wanted them to disappear, but there was a whole bank of information and theory about the use of magnets and the forces of magnets to either create a huge energy source or to reverse gravity. Okay? You can reverse gravity. Now, part of that, because of the theories about the ley lines and about the magnetic bending of lights, like the... like the aurora borealis and the northern lights are partly affected by electricity, partly affected by gravity. And people theorize that that's what Ed was into with the use of radio frequencies, the use of of these electromagnetic forces. But when you start thinking about the bending of light and the bending of magnetic forces, you're getting, you're approaching Einstein's theory of relativity, you're approaching a bunch of theoretical quantum physics type things. Whether Ed, with his fourth grade education from Latvia, was able to make those leaps or he had help, no one knows. And that's... No one knows. <clears throat> that's the interesting uh, cusp of all this, is to even have this understanding of uh, granted, when when he put out the pamphlet, you know, he kind of called out all the sciences and basically said that most of what we know is wrong, and that was kind of a bold statement coming from a, a guy like him. But the fact that he was able to make his argument, and it wasn't just it's wrong because I can disprove it, but he had reasons as to why, and he and he had these beliefs that seemed to just go beyond uh, a rudimentary understanding of science. Yes. Um. And he left this castle. You know, I mean, he may not have left all the the theories on the chalkboard mm-hmm. or, you know, all the proofs behind it, but what he did was, and that's what he, and, and he was a kind of a proud little guy who, some of it's just maybe bold-faced bragging, but he's saying, look at what I built. I mean, there's a lot of pieces that we talk about in the book, and... um there's a lot of things that we refer to that he talked about that he's kind of bragging 
if you don't believe that what I'm saying and you can't quite understand it, come look at my castle and figure out how I built this because no one knows. And I'm telling you, or I'm giving you, I'm giving you a peek at it. I'm not going to tell you the whole thing. Well, and, and not only that too, but you mentioned in the book that, uh, as much as he went with this story of, uh, of Agnes Cuffs and the unrequited love, he, and that he was building it for her to bring her to Florida, you also do mention though that he built that Florida table and mentioned that he'd, he'd like to see the governor meet there with other important dignitaries. So he seemed to have an idea that this was going to be a destination point for other people. Yes. Um, yeah, what you're talking about is he carves a very large and very heavy um, map of of Florida, so large that it can seat upwards of 10, 12 people. He, he actually told people that he was going to have the governor and his cabinet come because he was going to explain all this to them, um, whether he really meant it, whether, I mean, I don't think they ever, they never came. There's no documentation that he ever, they ever came. And there's never even documentation he ever invited them. But there, there was always this sense that he felt that he was doing something that other people ought to be taking note of and they would all be coming. And so you're right. He built this big table, say the Florida. It actually has the, uh, uh, water with Lake o- Okeechobee right, right where it's supposed to be. Looks just like the state of Florida. And it could, it's, a, it's so massive. And he thought, he told people he was going to bring the governor. And there were other hints at him trying to explain it to people. Uh, the most, probably the most notable one, maybe two, the one that um, no one can actually prove, but many people think that he did go and try to get noticed by going up to Miami and filing patents on some of this process and that people from the government saw and heard about those patents or whatever, this, we don't know, and they came and they roughed him up, made him mad, and so he went back up, got on his bicycle, rode to the bus, went up to the Miami, and this is before even Xerox and so forth, and got the files and brought them back, and from that point on would never talk about it. Um, so there's a whole bunch of thought that the the forerunner to the Pentagon and people like that in the in the Defense Department were trying to get a hold of it, and of course, Homestead Air Force Base was there, and um, he once got in somewhat hot water for using his radio um, in interfering with the early days of Homestead Air Force Base, and people went out and visited him um, from the sheriff's office and. There's all kinds of rumors then about that the Army or somebody in the military was trying to figure out a military use of his secrets. But none of that has, I mean, if they did, they're not going to come tell people like you and me if they're really powerful secrets. And if they didn't, then there's nothing to it. We're coming up on our news break here, Rusty, but uh, one question that just popped up in the chat room uh, at Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com is uh, one person, Spectre, mentions that, uh, you know, hearing that the, the castle was built for love, but they wonder if he ever made any money off of it and if that was a reason why he wanted to keep his method secret. But it doesn't seem like he, he made a wealth of profit off of Coral Castle. He didn't make a wealth of profit. He charged an admission. He charged a quarter. Um it's kind of interesting 
he was a quirky guy. He could he had this high intelligence. He remembered the the, the stories we got was he remembered everybody who came. He charged the people a quarter if they and it was a tourist trap, so to speak, or a tr- tourist not trap, but a attraction. And if you paid a quarter and you came and visited and you came a second time, he didn't charge you a quarter. He remembered it, all those people that came and he oh you've come before you don't have to pay your quarter. So he wow. didn't make any. I mean that wasn't a whole lot of quarters. And he he lived on the property in in a wooden shack. In a wooden shack until he built a stone. Until he built a massive stone corner of this thing with slabs that are five and ten tons. <laughs> yeah, he lived in a wood, and, and then he lived in the castle. Yeah. He built the castle, and he and he raised vegetables and and uh, and the suspended and had, the suspended bed I thought was pretty fascinating too. There's this; it goes on and on. If we have time, we'll talk about it. Oh, we will. Well, we're, like I said, we're coming up on the news break now, and uh, that'll be about ten minutes. But when we come back, I want to get into some of these other, th- some of these different theories about how uh, Ed was able to pull off building this castle. And also, I want to talk about some of the connections that we can make, uh, not only with the Crosleys, but with uh, maybe extraterrestrial life too. Because I know on this program we talk a lot about the strange, the unusual, and the supernatural, and and it seems like even when you're Touching upon something like Coral Castle that on the surface doesn't appear to have those connections, it all comes back to it sooner or later. So we'll talk well, about all that. We can talk about it. In in summary, there's a higher form of intelligence that built this castle than uh, was just walking around the streets of Homestead, Florida back then, or Miami, Florida today, or anywhere. I mean, and the proof is is that all the people with theories haven't built their castle yet. <laughs> That's true, and and the interesting thing about it is, not only was it built by a, a higher intelligence, but Ed always said that it was intelligent of the ancients. So it was, yes. it was a long known wisdom that is perhaps lost to mankind. So we'll, we can talk. We can talk all about that. Sounds good. So we'll take a break for the news. When we come back, we will talk about that with our guest, Rusty McClure. In the meantime, during the break, if you want to go to his website, uh, we have crosleybook.com for your first book, and uh, cincinnatusbook.com is for your new one, right? Yes. Uh, actually, the newest one is Coral Castle, but coralcastlebook.com, cincinnatusbook.com. Cincinnatus is a novel that uses um, the Coral Castle mystery as one of its plot foundations. And go on there, and you can order the book for yourself, and you can read all about it. And also, uh, some of the, uh, the the there's photos up there, and there's a way for people to see some of this. So here we are talking about it on the radio, but take a few minutes uh, during the news break to to really get a glimpse of it for yourself. And there's the book itself, Coral Castle, has a number of outstanding photographs, both historical, and it looks like there's some newer photos that maybe uh, you know were taken just for the book. Yes, the whole co- there's a 16 page color section in the middle of the book that we had taken just for it and um it will make you want to go visit Coral castle absolutely makes me want to go and when i do go i'm going to crash at chris balzano's house so uh, <laughs> we'll talk about all that coming up uh, after the news break so again just go to spookysouthcoast.com and all of rusty's websites are linked up there and you can purchase the book for yourself uh also and, sorry go ahead and i want to make sure i i almost interrupted you before but I'm the co-author of this book. Jack Heffern helped me tremendously, so I don't want you to think that I'm the only. I'm holding myself as the only author. I had, I had a co-author who did great work, and I want to give him credit before we sign off on this segment. 
Absolutely. So uh, Rusty McClure and Jack Heffron are the authors. We'll be right back with more. We'll talk about Coral Castle, some of the different theories, and we'll talk about just some really, really strange stuff, which is what we specialize in here. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen. I think something is happening. Allow me to reintroduce myself. Spooky South Coast is back. Are you not Welcome back to Spooky South Coast, winning since 2006. Tim Weisberg here, along with the man who has tiger blood running through his veins, the silent assassin, Matt Costa, science advisor. Matt Moniz is not here. He is uh, hiding out in Chris Balzano's bushes, which is a chat room joke. And before we get going back into the discussion, I want to uh, let everybody know uh, Kathy Caslin now. If you know Kathy, she's known as the Paranormal Granny. Uh, she's a, a wonderful person, a paranormal investigator, and just a super, super nice woman. She actually has a brand new show called Paranormal South Coast, uh, which has recently begun airing on QATV8 in Quincy, Mass. And uh, the first episode features DART, our friends Eric Lavoie and, and the group from Dartmouth Anomalies Research Team. Uh, I think Eric and Paul both went down to film this. Uh, part one is airing now. Part two will air in April. And uh, on... Th- the QATV.org website, uh, the only showing that they have listed that's left on the schedule is uh, tomorrow at 4 p.m., and it doesn't appear like they have a broadcast live on their website. So uh, if you are in the Quincy TV area, 4 p.m. tomorrow, Paranormal South Coast, and I'm sure it's going to be all over the station, and we'll see if we can, if they if they don't get it broadcast over the Internet. Uh, we'll see if we can get Kathy to actually upload the show. Maybe we can do it on Spooky TV, just run the disc and that way there people can see it. But, uh, again, tomorrow at 4 p.m., Paranormal South Coast, the first of two episodes with our friends from DART, so be sure to tune in to that. All right, getting back into the discussion with our guest, New York Times bestselling author Rusty McClure, and he is the co-author, along with Jack Heffron, of Coral Castle, uh, the mystery of Ed Leedskollin and his American Stonehenge. And we've been talking about Coral Castle and how it might have been constructed by one five-foot-tall, 100-pound Latvian immigrant uh, with a fourth grade education, and we were discussing before the break, Rusty, that there there was a higher intelligence uh, that was involved in this. And what exactly do you mean by that? Well, it's all theoretical, and I'm not sure exactly what that I do know what I mean, but I know <laughs> that there was higher intelligence. Sure. And um, the reason is is that uh, Ed finishes Castle in the mid 1930s. He dies in 1951, and a lot of people have crawled all over this castle. I mean, a lot a lot more people have never even heard of it, but a lot of people have theorized how he built this castle. I mean, we established in the first section um, the story about how these people wrote all their, 
their uh, affidavits that said he worked alone. And so now you look at this castle and say, well, how could a guy work alone and build this castle? And that begins the theories of how he did it, because he didn't leave a clear path. He left hints. He left hints about how he did it. And we were talking before, just before the break, about these these issues with electromagnetic harmonic levitation, perhaps, that touch on quantum physics, where Ed is in argument in his speaking to people while he's alive and in his journals, most notably the one he wrote about magnetic current, where he says he takes on the whole scientific world that says, that he doesn't think there's such a thing as gravity, it's actually magnets. The ob- and so he has this, he's built this generator, he's built this, uh, this, this fairly powerful, perhaps, radio, and he's now telling people he's using, he's, I mean, some people theorize that he's singing to the rocks, this harmonic levitation. This goes to, for some people, uh, right straight to um, Tibetan monks who have levitated and used harmonic levitation. It goes to um, perhaps how the Druids built Stonehenge and more importantly how the Egyptians, even though they had tribes and nations of the enslaved helping them build these pyramids, there's a lot of theories about how higher forms of intelligence let's call it higher forms of intelligence have have provided physics that we moderns do not possess so part of it is that the ancients who have built many of these stone places in south america um asia europe and many of those people were built they built them a long time ago and no one knows how they built them either. And so that points to higher forms of intelligence. And, and Ed kind of hinted at that, too, when people would ask him. Didn't he say that he, he mastered? Yes. yes. He would tell people over and over again. Sorry to interrupt you there. But he would tell people over and over again that he had figured out the secrets that helped the Egyptians build the pyramids. He also took the wall, the far wall of the of the, of the um castle when you come into it and he constructed this heaviest set of stones and copied the uh the great pyramid the same wall almost in a code some people believe that said to them look i lifted these rocks and they were like pyramids and it's the it's the um um pyramid of giza and he is copying that and People think that he didn't, I mean, Ted, Ed didn't do anything by accident. Ed, Ed thought out all these things. And, he, and so he's kind of leaving a clue in addition to the fact that he told all kinds of people that, who visited that he had discovered the secrets of the Egyptians that helped them build the pyramids. The bottom line of all that is no one has ever built a castle like Ed by themselves and it's all theoretical, it's all hypothesis, no one really knows. 
And, that makes sense. Uh, absolutely. And, and what's fascinating, too, about it, as you mentioned in the book, uh, some of the more modern uh, scientific uh, you know, approaches to this, some different studies that have been done as of late that might be linked to how Ed could have pulled it off. But still, everything is so theoretical that there's no definite proof that, that they can be linked together. Yes. Um, there are recent papers written at... Um at Harvard, that think that there's something called the the Casimir Force. Um, the University of Scotland has scientists who've also published a paper that think that some that they think they uh, have approached the ability of taking atomic particles that stick together through a special lens called the Casimir Force, and they think they can levitate those microscopic objects. But they haven't done it yet, and they're only microscopic. But that approaches the front porch of Ed's logic that he left us. But then, of course, he he left a bunch of unknown pieces. He either buried them, destroyed them, or just didn't talk about them when he wrote his journals. And so there's all these gaps that Ed left, probably intentionally, but we don't know which I think is the compelling thing about this whole place. I mean, I really, really encourage people, and at the back of the book I say to people, you can think about all these theories all you want, draw your own conclusions, but here's what I can tell you for sure. If you visit Coral Castle, you will not be disappointed. I mean, this place is for real. It it withstood Hurricane Andrew when nothing in Homestead, Florida withstood 1994 Hurricane Andrew, including... Homestead Air Force Base, which got destroyed. And if you go there, you will be amazed at this place. Well, and we also have uh, on the line with us, sorry, I did not introduce you, Chris, at the beginning of the hour, but our content director at Spooky South Coast, Chris Balzano. And, Chris, as an English teacher, I want to apologize to you for using the word scientifical. Well, you don't even know how it's grating on me. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I know you very well. <laughs> but it's it's funny. I was I was going to say, and I mentioned it in the chat room that um, down here there is a huge push for people to go to uh, Coral Castle with you know the whole state vacation thing and the whole you know visit something local instead of taking a trip somewhere else. I mean, I was right about the time that I was discovering Rusty's book, uh, inviting him on. There were advertisements all over the place for come to Coral Castle, come to Coral Castle, and and. Uh, when someone had, uh, I believe, was Specter in the chat room had asked about the, you know, isn't the sea rock soft? And, and one of the things they say is, come and it can be like a big playground for your kids. We'll allow them their their pieces they can walk on and crawl on and and, and stand on. And so it it is now a, kind of having a rebirth. And I think I would be proud of it that all these people are now going to be coming to uh, Homestead to, to visit it. I I agree. He would be very proud of it. I mean, it's kind of. Another mystery of Ed, he was a hermit. He never married. He never had kids. People of Homestead said he never really even had friends. And yet he had all these people who wanted, he wanted people to come and see what he'd done. You know, I mean, here's a guy who lives alone, basically a recluse, and yet he wants people to come to what is his house. He puts ads in the paper, in the Miami paper and all the papers around to come see his house. And they come in and they tramp around where he lives, where he you know, the only place he even basically goes. And uh, so here, here's this hermit who wants people to come see him. So he's kind of lonely and kind of a hermit at the same time. He would want people to come and see this. He really would. 
Well, w- one of the more interesting things I think about his character, and you delve into it in in the book, is that uh, maybe he wasn't such a social creature because I don't think society would have really appreciated some of his outlook uh, on interactions amongst human beings. Uh, if you read uh, the the what was it a book in every home is is that the pamphlet that he yeah, put out? exactly. And we'll talk about that for a minute. He, he, he you know, again, he's jilted in marriage um, at twenty six, no less. Never marries. Um, spends a lot of time alone in the hot sun, <laughs> kind of a frustrated, perhaps, human being, and writes this pamphlet on every other page. He publishes the pamphlet on every other page, um, and it's all about how women should behave, how families should be raised, how mothers should behave. I mean, it's pretty lunacy. And so... Because it's on every other page and because it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense, it's kind of disturbing. There's a whole other set of people say that he that's where he placed his codes of the secrets. And the reason he left it on every other page blank was so that people could work on the codes on the right side of the, of the blank pages. And there's all kinds of theories. Again, none of those theorists have ever built one element of the castle, let alone the whole castle. But but even surrounding all this stuff that he wrote, and if you read it, it's pretty disturbing. You can, yeah, I mean, there's a gift shop um, in, at Coral Castle, and they sell it. You can get online and buy these buy these pamphlets from them at the gift shop. And, um, and you can read them for yourself. And no one knows why he was writing this stuff. He certainly wasn't a theory on how to raise children. Well, and he also had one of the uh, aspects of Coral Castle is the the repentance corner. Yeah, that's that's where I know if I go visit, that's where I'm going to end up getting sent. Yeah, it's a repentance center. It's a repentance corner where the children of he and Agnes are supposed to be punished in basically what is a stone stockade. But then there are theories that that's where the focus of the Resonance of the radio frequencies that reverse the gravitation are aimed, and all of that is just a foil. All the stuff about the repentance corner of the kids is a foil for what he really was doing, which was aiming all these high-frequency radio waves so that he could reverse the forces of gravity and lift rocks. But again, those are all theories. Um, Well, here you have the, the small Latvian immigrant who has built this uh, monolith on his own and who has published his theories as to how this all happens, and he claims to have a perpetual motion machine. So it's got to be only a matter of time before the government or the defense comes and knocks on his door and says, hey, we want these secrets. Correct. One would think. And, of course, that's part of the story, too. And we talked a little bit about that at the beginning. We talk about that in the book. Um, No one knows for sure whether the government really did come. He, he, he said people came and beat him up. Um, there's strong theories on both sides of the argument that he filed patents, and, and certainly there aren't any patents. There's no, at this, at this, from that point forward, if he went and got them back, there are no patents ever filed by him on record. But there would have been people, if they were paying attention to what he was doing, and he really was into these secret anti-gravity 
speculations or actually building the castle, then people would have been taking note and they would have been paying attention. Of course, that, that might be the segue you we could use to talk about how I actually got started with Coral Castle, the book, because of the theory. Theory that's the, that's the underpinning of the theory of the novel Cincinnatus. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems like uh, it, that's that end of things is something that you would definitely have a personal connection to, coming from the Crosley family. Well, that's how I came up with all this, and it, um, I'm there. I was fascinated for a decade, well, almost two decades, I've been fascinated by Coral Castle and, the, you know, this unsolved mystery and the power, if it is anti-gravity. And so I came up with the novel of what would a man do based on the, the supposition if he was really lonely and he really did want to share before he died the secret, who would he have shared it with? And, it, I mean, would it have been a weapon or would it have been something that you could better mankind with? Or would it be a weapon that you could better mankind with, so to speak, to protect his adopted country? And so the, the novel Cincinnatus actually came first. David Stern, who wrote The Blair Witch Project and many other of those kinds of books, and I wrote Cincinnatus with the underpinning plot foundation of the, of the mystery that no one knows about, which is the potential anti-gravity of Coral Castle. And and the Crosleys were known for their innovation. I mean, they we probably yeah, wouldn't be was, doing this radio show if it wasn't for them. Exactly, and and that was the first book. Um, I sold a pretty good sized company and had these ideas in my head, and I uh, and I partnered with David Stern to write the Crosley story, which is the story first of. Consumer radio. Um, Marconi invents the radio, perfects it, 1909. Marconi's friends are sitting in a coffee house, and they're lamenting the fact that they're going to have to put their friend in a mental institution because all he can talk about is hearing voices and music from 100 miles away, and they can't understand it. They're his friends, and they think he's going crazy. I mean, that's how breakthrough radio is in 1909. And in 1921, nobody knew what radio was, and my great-uncle figured out how to use radio as a consumer product by dropping the price from $130 down to $10 and making an affordable radio for everyone, just like Henry Ford made a car affordable for everyone, and um, changed the world by the, for the first time connecting people in real time. Marconi invents it, but he doesn't market it, and he doesn't take it to market. And my grandfather was the younger brother engineer, and they figured out how to build a $10 radio, and within a year had orders for a million radios with no radio station to listen to, to these radios that people wanted to get their hands on because they were so bored. And so they built the most powerful radio station, WLW, in Cincinnati. So they had... They had this huge juggernaut of a business in the makings in the Roaring Twenties and ultimately got into top-secret weaponry in World War II. And all that is a biography called Crosley, and they use radio for the second most uh, powerful 
top secret weapon in World War II, which is something called the proximity fuse. Um, the proximity fuse is a miniaturized radio in a in a artillery shell that, when it's fired, this little radio station puts out a radio wave that bounces off the airplane, comes back to the shell nose cone, and inside it is a receiver. They really um, have created the first transceiver, miniaturized, and what it does is it lights a fuse when the shell gets in the proximity of the airplane. Nobody knew that they were doing this. They were making 6,000 of them a day and flying them all over to the Navy who were using them against the kamikaze pilots and just increasing the kill rate of American um, artillery. Uh, Crosley's built cars, they built radio, uh, re- radios, like I said, they built refrigerators, but they had top-secret weapons of radio in a miniaturized form in the proximity fuse, and then they created Radio Free Europe to combat the radio propaganda of Hitler when he controlled all of Europe. And so you have this massive use of radio, Radio Free Europe, the most powerful ever radio station, Voice of America, and you have this miniaturized use of radio. And so in the book Cincinnatus, we use, we, we, we use the meth, the connection of tuberculosis, which my great aunt died of, Pal Crosley's wife died of tuberculosis. And so the connection of how Ed solved his tuberculosis to introduce the Crosley brothers and the two of them, they, they take Three of them take and park Ed's secret on an island in the Bahamas for the use of the uh, the future use of the defense of America, like the atomic bomb and the proximity fuse. How's that for a chase through novel, um, a novel story? Well, and and it's it's definitely uh, a story that when you get involved with it, you, you realize you're talking about two opposite ends of the spectrum. Here you have the Crosleys who have the money and the ingenuity to, to put into these things uh, in, in comparison to Ed Leedscollin, who is a poor guy doing all this stuff on his own, yet each is making innovations in their own way, and each seems to have tapped into uh, some greater uh, sense of purpose for what they're doing. Correct. You have... I mean, even it goes back to the to the early days of radio. I mean, the model is is that one guy comes up with something and the other guy figures out how to bring it to a market or bring it to a, to a um, military theater. I mean, it takes more. It takes. I mean, part of, part of this whole um, development that we call the modern era. You have inventors, you have manufacturers, you have people who who actually use the product. Um, many times it's in the military first or in the space race. It was in space, and then it gets applied to markets. And many of these items are either very, very large, like the supercomputers, or very small, like uh, the sensor that flushes the toilet automatically or turns the lights on or the, puts the garage door up and down. So you have the miniaturization of, of, of these things, or you have the maximization of them. And the use of radio was just that, when you had super radio stations and you had minor uh, proximity fuses used in, in the theater of war um, miniaturized. So you have, 
you have a lot of parallels in real life, and it, somehow I was able to figure out how to put Crosley, the story, the true story, the, the biography of these two brothers that created consumer radio out of the invention that Marconi had, parallel to Henry Ford, and a empire that included the ownership of the Cincinnati Reds and the birth of night major league play. There was a Crosley car, the first subcompact car ever built in America. There was a Crosley refrigerator that was the first that had the patent, the Crosley-owned patent for the shelf on the refrigerator door. It was this whole empire that ended in World War II with these top-secret weapons called Truth, the broadcast of Truth. Hitler would rail on the radio against the liars out of Cincinnati that were that were telling the truth about his enslavement of a continent. So you had these, you had all this together, and so we swirled it together in a double biography, the Crosley, that ended up being a New York Times, Wall Street Journal bestseller that David Stern helped me write. And then we moved to a novel that used the Crosley brothers in the secrets of Edward Leedskalman and um, and some other elements that I could talk about if you want me to. And then we ultimately decided that no book had ever been written about Ed and his Coral Castle. I mean, the guy died in 1951. Nobody wrote that book. And so we put all three of them in a trilogy of sorts. Two of them are factual, and one of them is a novel. Well, we're just taking a step back a little bit uh, to the Crosleys and radio. Is you you mentioned WLW, which you know at the time was the biggest radio station uh, in the world, right? And they they actually had to scale it back. Yeah. Uh, and then here we are, what you know, probably sixty seventy years after that happened, and now it's the only network station that's being carried not only terrestrially i mean i know the crosley sold it eventually but it's not only being carried terrestrially at a huge wattage but now it's the only terrestrial station that's carried on xm satellite radio so it's it's still the big innovator uh, in its field you know here in the 21st century yeah the crosley ultimately it uh in in a marketing sense they had the broadcasting might of the 500,000-watt radio station, not 50,000 like today, which is what, what WLW is and their six other clear channel 50,000-watt stations. They had a 500,000-watt radio station that reached from Antarctica to Chile to New Zealand, Australia, uh, this massive radio station. And then you had the cheap radio that could be afforded in the Depression by anyone. It was their only source of uh, communication. There was no television. There was no interstate highway. There was certainly no Internet. And these people bought an, ultimately a $7 radio that listened to this very powerful radio station and changed the world. Um, and that radio station finally got cut back because people in Congress were being beat on by their constituents because they didn't want to hear about the price of hogs and the Cincinnati Reds radio scores, and certainly they didn't want to know what the weather was in Cincinnati when they were in Austin, Texas. <laughs> they, they wanted their own radio station, and the broadband of WLW was was um, such a super station it 
it overpowered all the local stations. Well, I actually uh, collect. Well, I've recently started collecting uh, vintage radios, and I come across a lot of them. And and on the rare occasion that you see a Crosley, because they're so they are very collectible these these vintage ones, but they actually have like a little WLW marking on the dial, don't they? Yes. Um, it, it was classic zero sum. The more powerful the radio station, the cheaper the radio, and therefore you could you know you could undercut the market by selling the cheapest radio station, a radio. And then the only radio they could get would be WLW, and there was actually a notch. So when you turned the notch, it went right to WLW. So you had both ends, the radio and the radio station, all pointing to the same Crosley broadcast in the same Crosley name. And the the funny thing is, is you know, 50 years later, Ted Turner adopted the same philosophy with his superstition ideas. So it's, I mean, it's not... Even though the government did step in, it's not something that wasn't uh, appreciated by the business uh, community. Not at all. I mean, it, it's uh, it's it's a fabulous story. I mean, the birth of radio in Cincinnati spawns all kinds of careers, including the Clooney's. I mean, George George Clooney grew up in Cincinnati because his mother was dis- his aunt was Rosemary Clooney, discovered on on WLW. Uh, Red Skelton was discovered on WLW. Doris Day was a German girl from Cincinnati named Doris Klingelhopper, who changed her name to Doris Day and was discovered on WLW. Um, it it just goes on and on. Bing, Bing Crosby. It was the the Silicon Valley of radio, commercial radio now, was in Cincinnati, and that's the story. And, you know, there were some WKRP jokes, naturally, in the chat room uh, a little bit earlier. But, I mean, that's that's paying homage, though, to the fact that it is, it is this great birthplace of radio. Exactly, exactly. The reason, the reason that WKRP was in Cincinnati is because people knew. Uh, there was two reasons for that. One, because they knew they were history, historically knew that radio was started in Cincinnati. And then the WKRP had a... Uh, Kind of a funny inside joke, kind of spelled a word that maybe we can't say on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> that was the second reason. But the the um, the idea though that they're broadcasting the station and that Ed Leedsgallen could be sitting there in his coral castle with his bell jar crystal radio tuning in this massive station, uh, right. it, it must have been a, a great impetus to to your idea of, of, of sure tying it together. I mean, he, he he's sitting in. I mean, the truth is that sitting in 1928, 29, 30, 31 in Homestead, Florida with his home-built radio powered by his own generator, he can only get one radio station down there because it's totally rural. You know, it's it, it, this is a very rural area before before Miami Beach and all that got developed, this is before that, he's listening to WLW. Because everybody listened to WLW, because that was the only radio station of consequence. Now, a lot of them came along later and quickly, but he would have been listening to WLW in a very rural area because the smaller radio stations in the bigger cities were, were couldn't reach Homestead, Florida. So, yes, there's connections. Um, the use of that, that, um, that, that, Powerful, whatever it was that he came up with, call it anti-gravity. That's what that's what Cincinnati is based on. Actually, it's a story of 
of how Ed Leedskull and Zanate Gravity could have been parked by the Crosley brothers and turned into a weapon. And uh, we won't give the whole story away, but it, but it's it, there's a secret society, true society of the Cincinnatus is uh, the is named for the Roman general uh, who was uh, Washington's hero because he retired to his farm instead of taking over di- dictatorial control over Rome, and Washington was considered the the North American Cincinnatus by even Lord Byron wrote about him. And so Henry Knox, knowing all this, founded the Society of the Cincinnati at the end of the Revolutionary War to uh, figure out what to do with the victory that nobody thought they would ever get. The Society of the Cincinnati is a society that still exists today. It's headquartered on Massachusetts Avenue in Washington, D.C., and part of the element of the, of the novel Cincinnatus is, is that the, the, the Crosley brothers and Ed parked this secret with the, with the Society of the Cincinnati dating back to the founding fathers of Henry Knox and George Washington. And I, I can't help but think, I mean, my mind keeps going to this, even though it, it's just a, might be just a random coincidence, but, you know, I got inter- I've always been interested in radio my whole life, and I actually got involved because I'd heard stories about when my father did college radio and my, when my uncle was the, Host of one of the most popular, the, the most popular morning radio show in Dayton, when he went to the University of Dayton, Ohio. So maybe there's some sort of connection. There's a reason why we're talking tonight. <laughs> well, if he was in W, he was in WLW land there because the TV station that was a Crosley um, affiliate. I mean, it was a, it was a Crosley Corporation. It was WLWD. The television station was WLWD, standing for Dayton. And the radio, the television station they owned in um, Indianapolis was WLWI, where David Letterman was the uh, weatherman. That's how he got his start. So there are connections all through all of that. Um, and uh, there's a huge, rich history of the Crosleys in Cincinnati who created consumer radio for the world. And uh, and, and one of the Kind of unknown fortunes of of that era until we wrote the book and told the story. And Chris, did you have a question? Well, yeah, I was going to say that that kind of hits upon something that we talk a lot about on the show, which is this connection between you know fiction and nonfiction and, and historical fiction and present you know the difference between paranormal stories and you know retelling something of someone's experience and and how were you able to handle that with writing these two really strong non-fiction books and the fiction book in the middle being kind of the connector between the two. I mean, was it, is it clear to the reader what is uh, real and what's an invention? And, and then kind of, you know, is there any is there any link that they, they these two different people and these different groups of people would have had contact with each other? I mean, what, is there a difficulty in writing that kind of... Yeah, it is. It's That's kind of a back and forth. It's kind of right. It's kind of like a puzzle, because um, but but for some reason I was able to see it very clearly, and David Stern was able to help me see it and write it for the for the uh, for the general reader who a lot of people think. I mean, the the Barnes and Noble reader uh, in Seattle, Washington, read. Uh, Cincinnati and called it the American Da Vinci Code and thought that it was that 
caliber of, and we have people in Hollywood thinking about it going to be a movie. So we we got it done, but it was. And the question is, was it easy or was it difficult? Well, first of all, we started with. I mean, the two nonfiction books are all true. I mean, even the theories that we put in the book that I, we say they're only theories. It is true that people; these are theories, and we tell people who the we tell who the theory and all the elements of um, the castle, many of which I was talking about, the sundial, and all all of that stuff is totally true, and all the things the Crosley brothers did are totally true. Now, to answer your question of how we did the novel, borrowing from the mystery, well, the mystery is true. You know, we just spent quite a bit of time talking about the mystery of Coral Castle, and it is true. I mean, it is true that it is a mystery, and it is true that Ed created this mystery and kind of sat back and enjoyed, but was probably somewhat tortured by the fact that it was a mystery, and he didn't get to share it all, and he bragged about some of it. He gave us hints. So that part, that mystery, was what fascinated me, which is what got me started, one of the big starting points of of, of the novel. Now, to answer your question further, we connect the dots of Coral Cat, of Cincinnati, the dots of Cincinnati, which are true, are factual, and the connecting of the dots are the novel. And so, in the index of the book, we explain all the places that are true and all the things that are true. I mean, the the, the private island of Cat Key in the Bahamas, where Powell Crosley had a mansion, is true. Um, the fact that Ed, we say that Ed, there's no record that Ed ever went to Cat Key and that he ever knew the Crosleys. And the fact that this, we tell you in the, in the index of the book, uh, the novel Cincinnati, we talk about in pretty good depth, I do, this the society of the Cincinnati and, and how Henry Knox founded it and where it's located, and all of that is true. Um, we also say who who in the book were members of the society and who who weren't and how that was related. Um, and we do the same thing with the Crossley brothers. So we have these dots that are true, the connecting of the dots or the novel. Does that help you? Yeah, that, and that seems like it, it, it's very intentional. You wanted to make it very clear-cut that this is a fictionalized account rather than yeah. allowing the reader to say, wait a minute, is that part right? I mean, you, you, it's where some other books might not necessarily, uh, they borrow from history and then kind of just use that as their palette. You actually make a, an effort to say, you know, I don't want to get either of these issues clouded by saying, so here's what's real about the book and here's what's not in the book, you tell us. Yes, we do. Now, in the, in the novel itself, when you're reading it, we don't tell you it's not what's true and what's not true. But the compelling part of Cincinnati for me, and I believe for the reader, is the same compelling part that is Coral Castle and the Ed Leeds Scullin story. And that is that there is a mystery. <laughs> there is a real mystery of how this guy built this castle. And for decades now, people have visited it 
first talked to Ed about it and later studied him and studied what he wrote, and to this day that mystery still exists. And on top of that, that mystery very likely could put Ed um, in company with Newton and um, some of the great anti-gravity people, and that is a power, I mean, if he, I mean, remember, he lifted these massive rocks in a way that no one can do today, and perhaps demonstrated anti-gravity, which is a big secret. You know, Tom Clancy wrote a book about, uh, The Hunt for Red October is about the stealth doors on a nuclear submarine, anti-gravity is a much bigger thing than stealth doors on a, on a I mean, it, I mean that's a big thing, but anti-gravity is really big, and Tom Clancy can't point to those stealth doors, and you can't get in a car and drive south of Miami and see those stealth doors, but you can go see Coral Castle, and it is real. And you will be mystified on how he did it. You will be amazed if you go see it. So the whole crux of those two books, Coral Castle and Cincinnati, the foundations are on a real mystery. <laughs> not a not a made up mystery, but a real mystery that that is one of the neatest mysteries, I think. In North America, <laughs> and something that if we could, if we could figure out how he did it, would re- you know change the world. I mean, uh, I'm yeah. just, people have been killed <laughs> over keeping secrets like of this magnitude. Well, um, if you read Cincinnati, a few people do get killed in that too. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Um, and then you could take anti gravity without giving the plot away. You could take anti gravity and you could miniaturize it, or you could take anti gravity and explode it into something huge. And we do both in the plot. If you read the book, we did. And that has its sources in the use of radio miniaturized in the proximity fuse that was used in World War II against the kamikazes and so forth. And it's also in the explosion of the powerful radio that created Radio Free Europe and the Voice of America, beamed from Cincinnati into Eastern Europe to combat the oratory of Hitler at the height of World War II. So you can have you can have this thing aimed tiny, and you can have it aimed big, but I can't tell you much more than that because I'll give you the plot of Cincinnati <laughs> to win. I don't want to do that. Well, and, and first of all, I do want to apologize. If anybody's hearing that noise in the background, I think it's coming from our newsroom here. Um, they're doing some work over there, and usually we're the only ones in the building this time of night. But <laughs> the... Uh, I do want to ask you though, Rusty, when, when you were writing Cincinnati, and obviously the, like you said, the Coral Castle book with Jack Heffron's the newer book, but when you were writing Cincinnati, did you have a, a good understanding of Ed's character, of his personality? Or is that some, was this research taking place at the same time that you were putting together that book? Or did you find out more about him later on? Um, I had been fascinated by Ed for a decade or two. Um, like, and, and I had been paying more and more attention to him and to the castle. And when we started to write the book, Cincinnati, we had to do a lot of research, and we went to see it. Um, and uh, David, David lives in western Massachusetts. I live in Ohio. 
We made a, a, a journey to see the castle and to talk to the people, and we did a lot of research to understand so that we could fit all the people who followed Ed. And there are a lot of, you know, it's, I mean, it's not widely known about Coral Castle, but the people who follow him really follow him, and we fit Ed into the plot of the book as he would be, um, as he would fit in the book, the real Ed. So we had to do, the answer to the question is we had to do a lot of research. Mm-hmm. And we never found a book. We did, I mean, there was stuff on the Internet. We went down and talked to the people. There were the pamphlets that I've described that he wrote. There were um, articles here and there. And um, our publisher said to us that uh, he'd been listening to David and I doing, that we did all this research that fit Ed into the plot of Cincinnatus and the castle and the mystery, but he had never heard us talk about the book that had, you know, that had never been written about Coral Castle, and he thought that Cincinnatus was going to be such a hit that we would make, he said, I'm a book, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a book publisher, you're going to make a market for the book that never got written about Coral Castle, and you ought to do it. So, Jack Heffernan was the editor for the publishing house that edited did a great job of editing Crosley. He was the superb editor of Cincinnatus and the publisher. Then um, I said, well, you know, I'm a guy who went to Harvard Business School and ran businesses, and I'm doing this, you know, I'm not, I'm not starving, and I'm not the artist. I'm this guy who has these stories. I need somebody to help me. And so Jack stepped up as the editor, and he, was, he helped me make sure that I didn't screw up the Ed Leedscollin story. So that's kind of how we did it. Um, but it, but it, the, the, the legitimacy of Coral Castle resonates in the le- novel of Cincinnatus because Ed is a character, but we got to know Ed so well that Ed, is, Ed the character in Cincinnatus is Ed. I mean, he is Ed. The Ed that we knew and got to care for in the book Coral Castle, and uh, it was just a unique, unique experience to write two biographies. One a double biography, and then the 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 one in the middle is the novel that has the biography characters and their mystery. You know, you have this one. You know, like I said, the Crosleys were in World War Two. They were part of what. Dwight Eisenhower would one day call the industrial, military industrial complex. They were building all kinds of war weaponry, many of it top secret. And um, so when they meet Ed, Ed has a secret, right? And it could be used for military or it could be used for whatever. And so they park it on this island with this secret society. This all kind of fell together. I don't know how I did it, um, but I did it. <laughs> well, so there you it's go. It's a pretty good reading, though, I think. Absolutely. And don't, so don't just pick up one. Pick up all three. Uh, you can get Crosley. You can get Cincinnatus, the plot uh, to save America. And you can get uh, Coral Castle, the mystery of Ed Leeds Conlin and his American Stonehenge. Uh, again, CrosleyBook.com, CincinnatusBook.com, and CoralCastleBook.com, right? You can also get them on Amazon. You can get them at Barnes & Noble. I mean, again, as we talked, Crosley is a the New York Times bestseller. It was a Wall Street Journal and Business Week bestseller. So it's out there. These books are they're available in the general 
you know, they're available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and so forth. And all the websites are linked up right on the front page of our website, SpookySouthCoast.com as well. So thank you so much for joining us, Rusty, for sharing this story with us. Uh, and if, if there's anything else planned in the future, definitely keep us up to date because I know that uh, this is something that I'm going to start paying a lot more attention to and, and really delving into the story of, of Coral Castle. And, you know, who knows? Maybe someday uh, we will have that perpetual motion machine and, and we'll remember when Ed was the one that actually discovered it. I mean, I could send you a box of books. You could give them away on the, on the air if you want. Oh, that would be, ab- that would be excellent. We have people in the chat room that are already saying that they're going logging on to to go get the books now. So, all right. Well, um, you figure out how how I send them to you, and down you know in the next ensuing weeks, you can come on and offer offer some whatever you want to do with them as a promotion. I'll be glad to send you a box of books. Thank you so much. All right. Whatever we can do to help make people more aware of this story is is great for us. And send people send people to Quirrell Castle. I, I I encourage the listeners. Not only to read the book, but but then to go see this place. It is it is that good. You will not be disappointed. Homestead, Florida, and while you're down there, you know, just give Chris Balzano a shout, and he'll bring you some ribs that he found in his freezer. It's on South Dixie Highway. It's not hard to find. All right. Thank you so much, Rusty. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. And, Chris, thank you for bringing this to our attention, uh, the content director of Spooky South Coast, uh, bringing up something that I had never known about and now i'm glad that i do because it was a fascinating story you're welcome i'm just i'm just surprised that you never had it but uh i thought everyone knew but it did <clears throat> in, in hearing people in the chat room and i'm sure people who are listening I'm, I'm glad i was able to expose more people to it well i mean upon going back and reviewing it on youtube i did remember the segment on in search of but it was kind of just one of those things that i was like okay you know it, you know just one of those many stories that i heard but we are uh, we are just about out of time, but we want to let everybody know that next week we're going to talk about something that we we've discussed in the past. We're going to have Tom Biscardi on, right, Chris? Oh yeah, <clears throat> yep, the uh, Bigfoot hoax guy. Yes, uh, the 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 Bigfoot suit in the freezer. That guy. Yeah, <laughs> he's coming on to talk about how the whole thing was a hoax all along. He was just kind of Charlie Sheening us all. I guess. So uh, we'll talk about that and more next week with Tom Biscardi. And uh, we'll have Matt Moniz back in the studio because I know he wants to ha- ask some questions of Mr. Biscardi as well. Uh, so until then, we want you all. Hold on. I'm going to say go download Ghost Chronicles and Next Generation. I'm on the latest episode. Thanks to Ron and Maureen for having me on. Uh, so I'm on Paul Eno's show this week just in case people uh, want to cross over this week and I listen to it. Excellent. So until then, we want you all to stay spooktacular. <laughs>